Where is your faith? The fact is, we all have faith in something or in someone. Some have faith in parents and what they've said. Some have faith in preachers and what they've said. Some have faith in God. Some have faith in what the professors have taught them. Some have faith in what scientists say. We've all got faith in something. The fact is, despite what we like to believe about ourselves sometimes, none of us have had so many experiences that we can say that we walk by sight on everything. It's just not true. We all have faith in something. And so the question for us is, where is our faith? We all have something that is the guideline for our worldview upon which we base how we view things and how we look at the evidence. And so the question is, where is your faith? A couple of weeks ago, I got to go to Chattanooga and attend the gospel meeting that Paul Earnhardt was preaching, and he had some thoughts there about faith and inspired some study on my behalf, and I just wanted to share with you some of the things I got out of that lesson and some of the things that it inspired in me, and I hope that it benefits you as much as it benefited me, and I just wanted to share some of these things with you this morning. I'd like to take a look at some stories of faith. Look in Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, we see the story of Peter. Richard read this to us moments ago, but let's read it again to remind ourselves of what happened. It says in Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep, and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. I want us to understand what's going on in this story. Here's Peter. Peter is the fisherman. Peter knows how to fish. Peter's been fishing mostly uh, for all of his adult life. At least this is his job. He knows when you can get the fish. He knows where to get the fish. And he'd been fishing all night, and they just hadn't caught any fish. But Jesus had been teaching, and he used his boat to get out on the water so that he could, he could teach to those who were on the land without being pushed and, and shoved by the huge crowds. And he turns to Peter when he gets done, and he says, Now, Peter, I want you to go out there, and I want you to drop your nets. There's a problem with this picture. Peter is the fisherman. Jesus is simply a carpenter turned itinerant teacher. Could you imagine Wesley going fishing sometime and calling me up for advice? That's what this is like. All of Peter's experience, all of Peter's knowledge, all of Peter's sense says, well, this isn't the time to do this. I mean, there was a reason why they fished all night. That must be because nighttime was the right time to go fishing. But notice how Peter responds. Peter does express the fact that, well, we toiled all night and we didn't catch anything. He expresses what he knows about fishing. But then he says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Understand the choice here. Peter has two choices. He can have a subjective faith. A subjective faith is a faith that is subject to himself. It's subjective about what he feels, what he knows, what he thinks, what he can get his mind around, what he can grasp, what he can see. 
Or he can have an object of faith. That is, he can place his faith in something else and just trust it no matter what. And what we see here is that already, somehow, Jesus had impressed Peter enough that Peter said, Jesus, because you've said to do this, I'll do it. Had I been the one standing there, he would have just laughed at me. But something about Jesus caused him to say, at your word, I'm going to put my faith in you. You've said go do it, and even though everything I know says this is a pretty silly exercise, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put my faith in something else, in someone else. And that someone was Jesus. And so he went out, and he dropped the nets, and Jesus demonstrated that he was, in fact, someone in which he could, we could put faith. And the nets were breaking, and the boats were filled. I want us to understand that that's where we are. We can either allow our faith to be subject to ourselves, to what we know and what, what we can get our minds around and what we can grasp, or we can put our faith in Jesus. I'd like you to consider another story. Look at Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. Beginning at verse 1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches, you know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha saw the man of God, excuse me, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Then Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean. Verse 11, Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not the Arbana and Tharpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Can I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it's a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. We've heard the story of Naaman. We know this poor man had leprosy, a disease that caused him to be unclean and and, and anathematized by all who were around him. And if it continued to spread, it, it could be truly devastating to him. But this little servant girl that he had captured from Israel said, Oh, if you could just see the prophet in Israel, he'd be able to take care of this. And so eventually he comes to Elisha's door and Elisha sends a messenger. He says, all you got to do 
There's a river not far from here. It's called the Jordan. Go dip in that river seven times and you'll be cleaned. No. Notice what Naaman's first response is. Naaman's first response is, this is not how I thought it would be. This is not what I think should happen. This is not what, what my experience says. This is not what I see should happen. What should have happened is the prophet should have come to the door. He should have seen me. He should have called on his God. He should have waved his hand over the spot. And then he should have healed the leper. This is not the way it should work. And so he storms off in a rage. But one of his servants comes to him, and the English Standard translates this a little bit differently than most of the other translations. The way the English Standard translates it, it's as if the servant says, hey, look, this is great. All he's asked you to do is go dip seven times in the Jordan. Why don't you do that? Why not try it? The other translations, the way they translate it, is along the lines of, look, if he had asked you to do a great thing, you know, climb the highest mountain or uh, ford the largest river or do any of these types of amazing things, you'd have done that. Why not do this very simple thing and just go dip in the river? And so Naaman did. But the very important thing that I want you to notice is what that very last verse said there in 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. Why did he do this? Because it was the word of the man of God. And he could put his faith in himself, and he could allow his faith to be subject to what he could get his mind around and what he could grasp and what he thinks. And that caused all kinds of questions. Why would this work? You know, really, if the Jordan River really could heal leprosy, you'd think that that would be known far and wide. You think that if people can just go dip seven times in the Jordan and come up and be cleansed, that its miraculous powers would be broadcast the world over. And I wouldn't have had to come to this prophet. I could have just done that on my own, but I've never heard of this. And besides, if it's just about dipping in a river, why not go to the rivers in my home country? Why would I have to travel all the way down here? Those rivers are better. They have a reputation of being cleaner. Why would we go dip in a dirty river to make a leper clean? Or he could put his faith in the man of God, and in the word of the man of God. That's exactly what Naaman did. Naaman, instead of keeping his faith in himself and in his know-how and in his knowledge, he put his faith in someone else. Someone he determined knew better and knew more. And because he did, he was cleansed. When he came up that seventh time, he was cleansed. I want you to think about one more story. Abraham. Abraham and Isaac, look in Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. Shocking story here. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, he said, Here am I, my son. 
He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. God had promised Abraham, I'm going to produce all kinds of offspring for you. You're going to be a father of nations. Now Isaac is here and God says, I want you to go kill him. I can't imagine how that made much sense to Abraham considering the fact that this was supposed to be the child through whom the promise is fulfilled. And if he's dead, that can't happen. But I notice a very interesting statement of faith in verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, his servants, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham fully expected that he and the boy would go over there, they would worship, and they would come back. Yet, he was fully prepared to go over there and kill his son, just like God had told him. When his son asked him, Dad, where's the sacrifice? His answer was, the Lord will provide. And what a profound statement that is. Because you see, that is the problem that Abraham had had. Abraham's problem had been that he didn't realize the Lord would provide. Back in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 16, God had promised Abraham, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. But that didn't happen for a good long while. And we get to chapter 15 and verse 2. And Abram is worried about this. And he says, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. You know, here's just somebody that's in my house. And I'm going to have to hand everything up. You said I was going to have offspring. What are you going to give me? What are you going to provide me? Otherwise, it's just going to be this guy over here. And God says, just be patient, essentially. And then Sarai comes up with a great idea of, I'll give you Hagar, and you can go in and she'll bear a child on my behalf. And so Ishmael comes into the world, and, and Abraham just can't understand why Ishmael cannot be the one. In fact, in chapter 17 and verse 18, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, it's not going to be Ishmael. God is going to provide the son. And now that son is here. And God says, Kill him. But what Abraham had learned was the Lord will provide. I don't fully know what Abraham expected or what his faith was that would happen there. I think Paul in Romans says that he viewed God as able even, even to raise from the dead. 
Maybe that's what he expected. I don't know. But what he knew was God would provide. And I'll tell you why. Because he knew what God's promise to him was. Back in chapter 17 and verse 19, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. God said, it's going to be through Isaac. He didn't just say some no-name son. It was Isaac. He called him out. He said, it's going to be Sarah's son, Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him. And now he said, go sacrifice him. But Abraham knew God's promise. And Abraham's faith was in God's promise. There's no doubt that we all know that if you take a knife to somebody, they're going to die. They won't be able to have offspring. God won't be able to have a covenant with them. But Abraham understood that God said it was going to happen. And Abraham put his faith in God. Instead of having his faith subject to the things that he could understand and the things that he could know and the things that he had experienced, he put his faith in God. Because he knew that God knew better. And he trusted God. And as he was about to do what God had said, the angel called out and said, No, Abraham, that's okay. I see that you've learned the lesson of faith. I see that you're committed. And what did the Lord do? The Lord did exactly what Abraham said He would. The Lord provided. As He has done for us in so many ways. So where is your faith? Where is your faith? Is your faith inside you? Is your faith in what you know and what you've experienced and what your mind can get around? Is it a subjective faith that says, unless I can see it, touch it, taste it, grab it, feel it, it must not be so? Or is your faith in God's promise? Is your faith in the Word of God? Is your faith in Jesus? We've got all kinds of questions today. We've got all kinds of of, of issues that we deal with. And folks can tell us all kinds of opposing things and even try to offer what they say are evidence for all kinds of opposing things. But the question is, what does Jesus say? Is our faith in us or is our faith in Jesus? Think about this. If Jesus is God, the Son in the flesh, if He's your Savior, if He's your Lord, why not believe Him? You see... If we believe in Jesus as God in the flesh, as Savior, as Lord, then that means that we will believe Jesus when He speaks. And to the degree that we don't believe Jesus when He speaks, we don't actually believe in Him as Lord and Savior. Luke chapter 6 And verse 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Do not do what I tell you. I think we could make that very same point. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not believe what I tell you. These are the questions that we deal with today. What about the question of young earth creation or evolution? What about that question? We know what Genesis 1 says. Genesis 1 says that God created the earth and He created it in six days. And on the first day, He said, let there be light. And all the creation went from that point. 
But some scientists tell us today that that's not the way it is. That's not the way it is at all. The Earth, the universe is over 13.5 billion years old. The Earth is something like 4.5 billion years old. And that man, as we know him, was developed on, uh, evolved on the Earth 50,000 years ago. It's been going along. And they make some good arguments. There's lots of things they say, and they point to the fossil record, and they point to all kinds of things. And they say, oh, here's the evidence. We know that it has to be this way. It can't be the way the Bible said it. Now, they weren't there. They didn't see it. They haven't been able to prove it. But we know it just can't be that way. What did Jesus say about this? Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4. And I think I wrote the wrong verse up here. Yeah, Matthew 19 and verse 4. We're so used to talking about verse 9. I wrote the wrong one down. Matthew 19 and verse 4. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? When has he created them? From the beginning. He was creating man from the beginning. Some of your translations say at the beginning. Jesus said that God created man and woman from the beginning. Let me illustrate this for you. Can you imagine that all of world history is on this football field? Here's, here's the goal line all the way over to this goal line. In fact, we'll go ahead and put the beginning right there. All right, there's the goal line. All of world history is on here. If God created male and female from the beginning, where in this picture do you think male and female ought to come up? Would you think that they might be in the first yard here? Or maybe the first ten yards? Surely at least it would be in the first 50 yards there. But brothers and sisters, if what, the, some of the, if what some of the scientists are telling us is true, that the world is 13.5 billion, or the universe, excuse me, is 13.5 billion years old, and the earth is 4.5 billion years old, and so the beginning is 13.5 billion years ago, you realize that every inch on this field equals 3.6 million years. Not every yard, every inch on this field represents 3.6 million years. And you know when man comes in? Not here. Not here, not even here. Man actually comes in way over here. And this, this picture doesn't even actually give it justice because man actually comes in 172nd of an inch from the far goal line. Now, here's the beginning. God, Jesus said that God created male and female all the way from the beginning. Some scientists tell us, no, actually, it's just been over here in the last 172nd of an inch that that's happened. Now, the question is, where are we going to put our faith? This is not a Genesis crisis. This is not a science crisis. This is a crisis about whether or not we believe Jesus. Because Jesus said God was creating male and female from the beginning. So the question is, where is your faith? What about Noah and the flood? Is it really a flood or is it just a mythical construct? We've all read Genesis chapter 6 through 8 and we know that according to the Bible, God said that, uh, that the world had gone bad and he was going to destroy it, but he saved mankind through Noah and his family in the ark. And there was a flood that wiped everyone else out. 
Well, some scientists are telling us, no, that can't possibly be true. That's not true at all. Some students of mythology are saying, no, that's not true at all. Noah didn't really exist. Noah is a mythical construct. He's the cultural hero of the Hebrews that demonstrates to us not that this actually happened, but just as a story to demonstrate that man overcomes the, the terrible, horrific nature. And he's the cultural, Hebrew, cultural hero of the Hebrews. And that's all he is. It's just, it's just one catastrophe myth in a long line of catastrophe myths that we can find the world over, and that's all Noah is. It's just their version of that myth that we find everywhere. And we might hear some of the arguments. We might begin to believe that, well, this makes sense. I mean, it's, it's really hard to fathom that, that there could be a flood that would destroy all these people. And it, and it makes sense. It's really hard to fathom that God could create an entire race now from just eight people. And it's, it's really hard to fathom that he could get all the animal life that's here now on this boat. And it, it's really hard to fathom all this stuff. But the question really is, where is our faith? Because in Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36, Jesus said, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, whether you see the coming of the Son of Man as the final judgment or destruction on Jerusalem is really not a part of our point here. What what Jesus says is this judgment that's coming is just like what happened in Noah's day. And Jesus said there was a Noah. And Jesus said there was a flood. And Jesus said they were all swept away. But Noah was saying. That's what Jesus said. And he said, just as that, so this. Could you imagine me saying, just as babe, Paul Bunyan's ox was blue, so such and such is true. Well, of course not. Because if that first part of the statement just isn't true, and y'all, Paul Bunyan did not have a big blue ox named Babe, then the second half of that statement is not true. Now, this is not a crisis in Genesis. This is not a crisis of science. This is a crisis of faith in Jesus. Jesus said this is the way it was. My question is, are we going to believe him? Or are we going to put our faith in ourselves and what we can grasp and in our own intellectual power? You know, we weren't there. But if we believe that Jesus is God, God in the flesh, we know that he was. Can we accept his eyewitness testimony about how it happened? Where's your faith? What about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Were they real patriarchs or were they just downgraded gods? We've read Genesis and we know about God's promise to Abraham. In fact, we just read part of it a few moments ago. That Abraham was, that God was going to make his covenant with him and, and cause salvation to come to the world through his family. And then that covenant was passed on to Isaac and that covenant was passed on to Jacob. And then it was passed on to the entire Hebrew nation. And then, then came Jesus. And we know that story and we've heard that story, but some folks are telling us today, students of history and students of mythology, no, that's not true. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're not real people. What they really were, was the fact that the Hebrews were told to be monotheistic and they just took the stories of the Babylonian and Sumerian gods and took those stories and adopted them into their monotheism and just made them men. Really special men, but they're just men. They weren't real. They were just downgraded gods. The Babylonians believed in people like this. They just they thought they were gods. That's all they are. 
And when we study it and we hear the stories and we read the similarities, we can begin to think, wow, they make a pretty good point. Maybe this is true. Maybe Abraham didn't exist. Maybe he was just the Jewish concept of the fertility god who had lots of kids. Maybe there's something to that. Well, the question is, where's our faith? This is not a Genesis crisis. This isn't about whether or not you believe Genesis. This is about do you believe Jesus? Because Jesus, in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11, in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11, here's what Jesus says about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11, Jesus said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 22, and verse 32, in Matthew chapter 22, and verse 32, Jesus says this about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus makes this huge point. Look, the Scripture says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. So we know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive right now. I think we could probably make a point here that Jesus could have easily said God, God is the God of real people, not the God of mythological constructs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are real. This is not a crisis about Genesis. This is not a crisis about science. This is a crisis about our faith in Jesus. Do we believe Jesus? Because Jesus said they were real people. And Jesus said we'll dine with them in the kingdom of heaven. And we've heard that story about Jonah. Is it true or is it just a fanciful story? We know the story. We've read the book. Jonah was called to go and, and preach to Nineveh. But he didn't want to go because God was just too gracious and merciful. And he didn't want those folks to have grace and mercy, and so he ran the other way. And Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17 says, God appointed a great fish to swallow him up. And there he was, three days and three nights, and he prayed from the belly of that fish, and the fish vomited him up, and then God called him again, and he went to Nineveh, and he taught. And just like Jonah was afraid they would do, they repented, and just like Jonah was scared God would do, he relented. We know that story, but folks tell us today that just can't be true. And I mean, it is kind of hard to believe. There's, uh, To my knowledge, I don't know that we know of a fish who's got a throat big enough to swallow somebody like this. And it's kind of hard to believe that a fellow like that could be underwater in the belly of a fish and could live for three days and three nights. And I understand that's, that's difficult to grasp. My experience says that sort of thing just doesn't happen. My know-how says this, is, this just couldn't have taken place. But this is not a crisis of zoology. This is not a crisis of ichthyology. This is not a crisis of prophecy. This is a crisis of whether or not we believe Jesus because Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 commented on this. Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus said it happened. Jesus said that just as that happened, so would his death, burial, and resurrection happen. 
the question is, where is our faith? We're going to put our faith in what we can measure and what we can see and what we can touch and what we can grab, or we're going to put our faith in Jesus, the one we say we believe is God the Son, our Savior and our Lord. That's the real question. Now, I could be completely wrong. Jesus himself could be a mythical person, I guess. And if Jesus doesn't really exist, then none of this other stuff really matters. But I have come to believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. The story in Scripture is so compelling, I have accepted it. And having accepted that Jesus is God the Son, that He's God in the flesh, that He was there and I wasn't, that He was there and nobody today was, that He saw it and He knows. And I can put my faith in it because, you know, as smart as I am, Jesus is smart. As knowledgeable as I am, Jesus is more knowledgeable. As experienced as I am, Jesus is more experienced. So the question for us is going to be, where are we going to put our faith? Are we going to put our faith in ourselves and what we're smart enough to grasp? Are we going to put our faith in Jesus, God the Son? That's the question. Where's your faith?